You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. So good morning, Harvest. I hope you all had a good week. Um, if you are uh, new to us, my name is Andy Hoffman. I'm the pastor of students and young adults. And uh, last week we started a, a series, a message through, through spiritual warfare. And I know sometimes it's kind of odd to talk about, but uh, I mean, it's good to talk about. It's good to talk about the things that, that we, we can't see, but that often af- affect us. So, so last week, if you weren't with us, we were in Ephesians chapter 6 and, and talking about the reality of the battle. So that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against spiritual things. That the, the, in, uh, the believers, that we have the strength in Christ because of our status in Christ. We have the armor to stand against the schemes of, of the enemy, the schemes of, of the devil. In order to be armored, last week we said we had to pray and proclaim the gospel. And that's a good start. But so often we start getting to this place of like, all right, so that's, I pray, Andy, and I proclaim the gospel, but you know what? Like, my life is still kind of messed up. My life is like, what's my life going to look like in the midst of the battle? You say, man, we have the reality of it, and I know that, but what's my life going to look like in the middle of it? How do we, how do we talk talk about ourselves as, as believers and, and who are we? Like, why am I even in the midst of this fight? Like, why am I dealing with this? Like, what's the purpose do I even need to find? And so, church, today we're going to talk about finding purpose in the battle. Because so often, it's, it's easy to say, like, yeah, we, we know that we have it, and we know that we need to get out of it, and we know that we need to battle against it, but yet, so often, we miss the purpose of the battle. We see it strictly as something that's just trying to beat us down, and really, maybe God has a completely different intention. And so today, hopefully we can begin to answer how to find purpose in the battle. Because I know it's hard. I've been there. Many of you have been there. In the midst of spiritual warfare, we just kind of, we, we lose our minds. And we feel like we're just getting beaten up left and right. Every chance we turn, we're battered on the rocks. And so if you, if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, if you need a Bible, go ahead and just raise your hand up, um, and, our, and our ushers will, will just drop one off to you. Um, that's a sense to embarrass you, but we just, we just want to know, we just want you to be able to follow along with us. And so, uh, as Paul is, we're going to use Paul as the example here of, of how to find purpose in, in the battle. And so, so, Paul has written probably more than two letters to the Corinthians, but in this case, in, in the in the totality of scripture, we have two letters that are really kind of dedicated to this. And, and the church at Corinth, let's just do some back. Like the church at Corinth was a church that constantly seemed to be fighting about something, right? If you've read any of these letters, you know that Paul's always like, what are you doing, right? Uh, their, their disobedience or, or their, their desires, like the church at Corinth often missed the entire point of what Paul was trying to say or often missed the entire point um, of the gospel. Uh, they, were, they were morally questionable, they were skewing the, the gospel. They were arguing over nonsense and always found themselves in the middle of the spiritual battle. Thank God we're not a church like that, right? God, we all are broken. And so often, like, we, we go to the church at Corinth and we're like, hey, like, look at them. They're messing up left and right. And then you look at yourself and you say, well, I'm no better. <laughs> and we struggle with these very things. Like, we skew the gospel. We have pointless arguments. We're constantly in disobedience. 
And we, we begin to, to look at what this is and how Paul is, is talking about the church at Corinth. So in the midst of the battles, like Paul is our example here. He addressed the church at Corinth uh, in these ways. And so look, look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start in the very beginning of, of chapter 10, just working about six verses in. And it says this. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but, but bold towards you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of a walking according to the flesh. For though we walk according to the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons here, church, if you, if you write your Bible, underline this, highlight this. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have, what's the next words? Divine power, right? They have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So church, last week, if you remember this, we, we talked about uh, that the battle is whose? You guys remember? The battle is whose? The Lord's. The battle is always the Lord's. And so often we think it's our battle. And, and yes, it might be in many ways our battle, but ultimately the battle is the Lord's. So here's, we have three reminders this morning that we're going to hit. And if we really believe that the battle is the Lord's and we need to know this, we need to have the reminder to rely on God's power. If we believe that the battle is the Lord's, we need to have the reminder that we need to rely on, on God's power. We have, as believers, we have God's power. And church, we, we, we often will say, I believe that, but then our lives do not reflect that. And putting this in the, in the context, right? So, so Paul has been accused by, by the church at Corinth, not, maybe not the church at Corinth at large, but, but people within the church at Corinth, um, he's being accused of being more forceful in his letters uh, than he actually really is in person. They say, and you can kind of, I don't want to parse every piece of this letter out, but you can see where, where they, they say that he seems weak um, in person, and he seems weakly and feeble, and, and some say that he's doing things according to his own agenda and to things according to what he wants rather than what God wants, and that's not true. And so we, we see that context of, of him being accused, and so that's why he says, look, I'm entreating you, not by my, my arrogance, not my, by, by my authority, but by meekness and gentleness, by my humility and by my gentleness. I who am humble, I'm face to face with you. I want to be humble. I want to show you mercy. I don't want to be screaming and yelling. I don't want to be doing any of those things. Because when I come to you, I want to show you that I love you and that I care for you. <laughs> but you know what? Like, I'm bold when I'm away because you're reading it in the way of maybe how you're wanting to read it. Or, or, or maybe, you know, I'm bolder than I have to be because I'm not there speaking to you in the immediate. And so he's been accused of, of this, of being bold when he's away, but, but really meek and weakly when he is, he is in present. And so verse 3, he says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We walk in who we are as people, and we don't wage war the same way. We, we are in this broken body. We're in this unredeemed body right now. And I'm pretty sure if you, we look at our own bodies, we realize in some way, shape, or form that this body is not redeemed. 
Yes, in the grand scheme of things, but in this current shell, this flesh, we, we have not been this redeemed. We've not been in a glorified state yet, right? So often, though often like we, we don't walk in the flesh, maybe intentionally, we do it unintentionally. We, we end up relying on our, on our own resources to complete the, the, the things of God. We, we start in the power of God, but when the battle doesn't go our way, what ends up happening is we end up, we end up kind of shrinking back and, and relying on our own power and, and taking cheap shots to kind of get ahead. We, we do not rely on God's power. We resort to the subversive means, rely on our wit. Often, if it's me, I rely on my sarcasm to get me out of any hard situation. And I, I, look, it's always, we, we start in God's power, but so often like, we, we leave that. We're like, God, I'm going to do this in your power. And then when the battle gets harder, because it's going to get harder at times, when the battle gets harder, we turn around like, all right, God, so how can I get myself out of this now? God, how can I get myself out of, out of this, this whole battle, this whole thing? And Paul answers this question. He says in verse 3, so we walk according to the flesh. Look, but we're not waging war according to the flesh. Ephesians 6, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities. Right? And, and we, we think about the verse 4. It says, you know, for, for what Paul continues his thoughts, like for weapons of our warfare, Look, for weapons of our warfare against the spiritual battle are not of flesh, but they are of divine power. Divine power. Like, and we, we miss that so often. Like, we, we read that, and I've read that probably a hundred times, but until I actually sit down and run to read this, that the, the weapons in the warfare are not of Andy, of not of me, of not of my wit, not of my knowledge. We, it's, it's none of that. All that outside of Christ is garbage because we have divine power to do these things. To destroy strongholds. So, so the question I have to ask is, Christian, like, if you believe that and if you are a believer, how come so often we neglect the divine power within us, the spirit working through us? When we get stuck, we try to shovel our way out. When, when we hit a brick wall, we try to find a way to climb over it. When, when opposition's in our way, we try to outwit or outsmart or outcraft. Rather than just coming to a place where we are going to rely truly on, on God's power. I mean, I can tell you simply, it's because sometimes it's not tangible. Sometimes it's just, it's, it's not, like, we can't pick it off a tree. We, we can't pick it up at a store. We can't go buy it. It's not tangible. And so often, like, we, we as people, we, we only want to rely on the tangible things that we have. So we end up, like, relying on, our, on our, our lifestyle or our jobs. We end up relying on our cars and our houses and our pickets, fence and our family. The things that we see is what we put our faith in. And so often, then, then we, we, we run into these battles, and then we miss the divine power of the life of the believer. And Paul says we have three elements here, right? We, we, we destroy arguments. So one, we, we, we have divine power to do three things. To destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against God. And we take every thought captive. Three elements right there. Right, right in the scriptures. Destroy strongholds. Destroy every lofty opinion and argument against the knowledge of God. And we take every, every thought captive. So how do, we, how do we actually do those things? How do we destroy strongholds? How do we, how do we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion? How do we take every, every thought captive? Again, not in our own power. You're probably gonna hear me say that about 15 times because I'm trying to drive that point. Because again, we find ourselves relying on ourselves. This is an element of living by faith and not by sight. You can go back and look at that. Paul even writes that earlier in this letter, chapter five, verse seven. He says, we live by faith, not by sight. And, and again, that goes back to us wanting the tangible things of life. 
I'm, it's just so easy. Like sometimes we rely on a piece of paper with our name on it that has a degree title. Oh, you know, I need to have, have, a, have an MA in, in theology in order to talk theology. I need to have a doctorate in this to be able to talk about that. I need to, now, now, some places, like, you know, if I'm going to want a doctor to, to, have sur- to give me surgery, right? All right? I'm not going to, like, call you and be like, hey, Bob, yeah, I know you got a bachelor's in some sort of science study. Can you cut me open? <laughs> no. <laughs> There, there's, some, there's some needs actually to that, but, but I'm just referring to like so often, like, like in order to, to think outside of, of those things, in order when we get wrapped up in, in, in the minutia of our life, like we just rely on us. And, and we can't do that. See, Paul, Paul knows that we are seeing our, our old lives in contrast to our new life in Christ. Again, earlier in this same letter, he says that we are a new creation in Christ. We, we are not the same person, but yet if we know that we're not the same person, why do we rely on the same things we did in our old flesh, and why do we consider ourselves in the same shell, and why do we, why do we fight the same fights in the same way, in the same manner of which we've always done it? And, and we, then we wonder, like, what, God, like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to show me? He's trying to show you, do it a different way. He's trying to show you, like, it's not about you. And look, I, I've, look, if you know me for any amount of time, humility is not a strong suit for me. And I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because I realize it about myself, and we can make fun of our own things, but you can't make fun of it about me. Ha! <laughs> you guys all know what I'm talking about. All right? We can make fun of our own flaws, right? But this is, like, I look at this, I'm like, all right, so I can, I can do this in my own power. It's like, it's all right. You know what? I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, the fact that there's so many DIY tutorials on YouTube or not. Okay, because for me, Andrea's like, um, the whole house is falling down. I'm like, I can fix that. Andrea's like, the car just blew up. I can fix that. Uh, we need a baby gate. We'll go to Walmart, right? And, and it's one of those, like, we, we rely on us. Like, but church, like, there should be change in how we think and how we feel and how we find our power if we are actually in Christ, there should, be, there should be a change in that. Like When we engage spiritual warfare through those means, we should honestly be in divine power. It's not about like how crafty we are, how great we speak, the, the points that, that we argue. And, and so often that's what we rely on. We rely on our own strength, and, and we miss all these things. Like we must come from a place that is rooted in the scriptures. And he says this, we destroy arguments, and we just destroy the strongholds, and we destroy, and we take every thought captive. Why? Because the weapons of our warfare are of divine power, not of yourself. And according to Paul, even when we're right to have every reason to show it, we care for others more because we have compassion for them. And so often we get to this place like, you know, I can destroy this stronghold right here, right now. And guess what? We, we take every opportunity, if we have any golfers, you'll understand this analogy, to tee the ball up real high and take out our driver and just as hard as we can, send that ball sailing. And realizing that golf is not a game of strength, it's a game of finesse. Get 30 yards from the hole and take out your driver and tee up the ball, see what happens. Sometimes it's not about us. Sometimes, yes, we might be in the right, and sometimes we, we, we might have the ability to, to take care of these things, to, to destroy arguments and to, to take over the, the strongholds and all these different things. Man, but sometimes we just need to have more compassion. We need to care more about that person's soul than we do need about being right. And we miss that. Like, so, like, we are, a, like, I, I am a right, I am right, I am right, I am right. 
We need to care more about others, to humble ourselves. And, and not, not to the point of saying, like, hey, I'm wrong, but you can be right in humility and care for other people. That's a, that's a start to destroying strongholds and to, to fighting through these things. We get this picture that, that Paul's trying to lay out here. We, we get this picture that, uh, that we laid siege in destroying the strongholds, like we were actively going against it. Historically, I was a history major before I got called into ministry, right? So uh, U.S. history. But so often we, um, if anything about history, you always know that the city under siege is always on the losing battle. The city under siege is always under the losing battle, right? And so, you know, I think about this, like the divine power versus man's power. Uh, but for 13 days, give or take, in, in 1836, there was this uh, little Spanish mission in Texas called the Alamo. You had roughly 100 people, Texans, in that, that mission. And for, ten, for, for the first 10 days, it was just them. And they got, you know, by the end of it, they had about another 80 or so. And so by the end of the, the whole, whole siege, they, there was 180 Texans versus 4,000 people of the Mexican army. Man, it, those aren't good odds, right? But too, too many times, people are like, we, we act like we're 300 going, this is Sparta, and like we allow the, the hundreds of thousands of Persians to come at us, and we're like trying to take everybody out. Like, that's not real life. Real life is like the Alamo, where there's 180 people surrounded by, by 4,000, and we, we know historically that that city is usually at its last leg. That's all done in man's power. Eventually, the Mexican army overran the Alamo, and, and, and the rest of that is, is literally history. Um, but then we have, we have a siege that's done under the divine power, and we, we look back at the Battle of Jericho. And they said, how are we going to destroy this stronghold? And everyone in Jericho at this point has seen this army going, well, they, they can't get through our walls, so it really doesn't matter. And what do they do? They pray to God, and God gives them instruction. And what, They start walking around. He's like, walk around the city, and... And then last day, walk around the city seven times and blow your trumpets and give a mighty shout. And then the walls came falling down. And so we, we see the, the siege on the, done in the, the power of man, but then we also see the siege done in the power of God. And, and we, we, we look at these, these different pictures, but when we, uh, when we destroy strongholds by speaking truth into the darkness, by destroying the enemy in those ways, by stopping the resources. Church, you need to know this. When we destroy strongholds, it's an offensive position. We are the ones surrounding the city. That's the image Paul is given. We're not the ones in our little conclave or in our homes or in our communities going like, please, devil, don't come this way. We are on the offensive position saying, no, we're going to go to the enemy. We are going to destroy the strongholds. We are going to battle well, knowing and being reminded that we rely on God's power because it is his divine power of how we do these things. Amen. Strongholds are usually a last-ditch effort for survival. Again, every place in history, strongholds very rarely last. Because what ends up happening is that you get surrounded and you begin to amass your troops or your people and you cut off the supplies and eventually you either will starve them out or you will destroy them out. Church, we often have this picture backward that we are the ones in the stronghold and that's not true. We are the ones that are waging war against the enemy.
when Peter, when Jesus tells Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that's not a defensive position. Because when you're at someone's gate, that means you've come to their front door. And if we believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, guess what? That means, church, we need to be out there waging war against the gates. Not saying you stay over there and I'll stay over here and we'll live peaceably. No, no, no. That's not what, what is being laid out here. We, we don't ask culture, like, hey, culture, can we, can we come in? Can we just have a conversation? No, we, we come breaking down the barriers. We come breaking down the stronghold. And so that's, for the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So how do we, how do, we do this practically, right? What are some three practical ways that we can kind of walk through how to actually destroy the strongholds, how to, how to uh, destroy the, the arguments against the knowledge of God, and, and how to take our thoughts captive? How do we do that? First one is this, we strive for holiness, Church, we strive for holiness. You can look back at this, chapter 6, verse 7. But Paul says this, By truthful speech and by the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. That is how we strive for holiness. Paul describes spiritual weapons that the believer has to fight against the enemy. So it's truth and righteousness. And so we strive for holiness. Now, I know sometimes in our lives, like holiness gets really construed weird. And so we need to talk about like, what holiness is and what holiness is not. And really briefly, Kevin DeYoung, in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, he says, expecting perfection from ourselves or others is not what holiness is about. But yet so often when we hear holiness, we, we think like, okay, so I need to be perfect. I'm walking in holiness today. I haven't sinned. I've kept my sins to a minimum. <laughs> I, I mean, I only sinned once today. Oh, I'm not holy. It's not what holiness is. Holiness is a fight for your spiritual life. That's what holiness is. That's a really simplified definition of it, by the way. Don't take that as the comprehensive. <laughs> but so often, like that's I love De Young's quote: "Expecting perfection from ourselves and for others is what holy is not what holiness is about. Holiness is about living your life in the battle, and holiness is about watching our walk." What Paul said last week in Ephesians chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, continuing us, is this, Therefore, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says it all over the pastoral epistles. He says it all over Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. He says it everywhere. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. These things strive for holiness, church. We don't give up just because we're being attacked. We strive even harder because we're being attacked. So we strive for holiness. Here's the second thing. We check our motives. And when we, when we look at this, like, why are we doing the things that we, we do? And you can look at uh, chapter 11, 1 through 11. I'm not going to read it right now, but, but Paul, Paul is essentially putting out, he's saying, look, my motives are pure in what I'm saying to you. He's saying my motives are, are pure in everything that I'm doing. And so we have to ask ourselves, why are we doing what we do? For, for what purpose? And our honest evaluation actually shows a lot about us and the human condition. Sometimes we do things for notoriety. Sometimes we do things because like, other people expect us to. Sometimes we do things because we want someone to give us a pat on the back or whatever else. Um, 
But the question is like, do we, do we live a godly life for Christ or do we live it for the rewards? Do we live a godly life for Christ or do we do it for our family? Do we live a godly life for Christ or do we do it for something else? We need to, to check our motives. That's one of the ways practically that we can destroy strongholds because honestly, honestly, if we are living our lives for ourselves, the divine power often kind of leaves where we're at and we end up doing things in our own power. And our motives are shown very clearly to other people. Here's the third thing. So we strive for holiness, we check our motives, and this is one, one for some of you guys might be a little bit interesting, right? But we examine our teachers. That includes me, any of your pastors. But I want to read this, because I think it's interesting. Chapter 11, 12 through 15, says this. Paul's setting up that he's able to do what he is, wants to do, but he also starts talking about these super apostles that are in the church at Corinth that, that's, that you, know, you, you pay them an exorbitant amount of money in order to get these blessings or whatever for these miracles from them. He says this in verse 12. He says, And what am I doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. It says, for such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So, it is to no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. You have, in this context men who have come into the church at Corinth claiming to have the authoritative power of God within them and then they turn around saying but if you want that you will pay me for it if you want this saving knowledge I will tell you but only I can tell you the right way and we have to examine our 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 teachers and and teachers often is so much more than just a person Sometimes, it's, sometimes we, we go, well, the best teacher for me is my life example. Yikes. If your best teacher is your life's example, or if your best teacher is your life experience, you need to run away from your life's experience. Because if I'm sitting there saying like, hey, guys, look, but I, was, I, I was a Christian following Jesus when I was seven years old. But my peaks and my valleys often do not necessarily resemble what God had for me. I'd fly and I'd get this spiritual high and I'd get super prideful and be like, yeah, only I can interpret the scriptures. And then I'd hit this spiritual low in the valley where it's just darkness and sin. And my life becomes like a roller coaster. I'm screaming, let me off the ride. And, and that's what my life looks like. And so it's one of those things like when we are hurting or in need of explanation, we run to those whom we trust. And there's not, not necessarily anything wrong, wrong with that, but sometimes we, we run to those who make us feel good or something that makes us feel good or something that makes us feel at all. You know, so this is why often uh, we, we fall into sin so readily when we struggle. I love how, how Paul Tripp lays this out. You have, you have sin, and sin leads to slavery, and slavery leads to tragedy. So your sin starts there, and it can be something simple all the time. But your sin will lead you to slavery. You become stuck. You can't get out. You find yourself chained to the master of whatever the sin is. 
And then we find ourselves in tragedy because after a while we've just given up trying to fight back because we are chained to whatever it is that we say that this sin is in our lives and we just kind of give up. In the, the, the midst of the battle is the easiest way for the enemy to segregate you, is the easiest way for him to isolate you, is the easiest way for him uh, to, to do those things. And, and when we're left to our own devices, we struggle. When we're left, left, when we're left to, when we kind of put Christ out and, and we're saying, you, 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 you stay here, we, we're left to our own advances to struggle. Like we, we just do. It's important to know who's telling us uh, what truth and, and what, where they point you. And if they point you towards anything other than Christ, you need to run. And, and this is kind of where we have to be careful because so often we'll find a teacher who has 95% of the truth and it sounds really good because it's the truth. But then they mix in the other 5% of the nonsense, and we have to run. But so often when they have 95% truth and 5% wrong, we easily swallow the 5% we know is wrong because the 95 sounds so good. And we're like, well, they're, they're not all that bad. I mean, I, I know what they said here is kind of wonky, but you know. Now understand this too, like I'm not talking about people that, that agree on primary issues of the gospel, but on secondary and third issues, they've come to a disagreement. That's not what I'm talking about, because there is, there is a place for that in the spiritual life, yeah? Like we agree on the components of, of foundational issues of Christianity, but you can have two godly people that, are, that arrive to two different places that are still biblically sound, right, that's the key word here, biblically sound, and, and agree to disagree, and that's, that's okay, Right? But it's when they start peddling complete nonsense and we go, well, I know that was sounded nuts. I know they're kind of questioning the deity of Jesus here, but I mean, the rest of this is really good. You're like, what? But yet in those moments, we'll run to those types of people because like they're telling us everything we want to hear and we ignore that 5% that we know is completely wrong. Have you ever seen the movie The Help? I'm not advertising this, right? But if you've seen the movie The Help, it's like the Millie chocolate pie. All right, it's true. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but look, God has a plan for you in the midst of the battle, right? And it's not to run to some part idol or some subpart teacher. It's to dig deeper into the gospel of Christ. It's to dig deeper into that. And, and I love what J.D. Greer says. J.D. Greer says that, that the gospel is not the diving board of which you enter Christianity, he says the gospel is the pool of all of Christianity. When you're, when you're dealing with spiritual warfare or anything else like that, you don't get out of the pool to jump back in. You dive deeper into the pool. I love how he, how he says that. And these three elements that are used by, by Paul to connect these points. Right? He's, man, there's a great guy that writes the uh, commentaries for the book of 2 Corinthians. His name is David Garland. He says this. The, the points that Paul connects to, they're activities of Satan, either as a part of Satan's design to outwit us, or as the object of Satan's assault itself. So we know that Satan's in the middle of it, but it's either he's trying to do something to outwit us, to make us question the goodness of Jesus, or it's the actual object of Satan's assault. And so often, in this area, that is our lives, that is our minds, and that is our mouths. We, we look at that, I mean, if he can get a foothold in our heart, he can control every single thing that we do. And the moment that we let the enemy into our heart, and I'm not talking like any like weird, like demonic stuff right now. I'm just talking about like when we let the evil sinfulness of our heart and the methods of how the enemy tries to take us 
and pull us. When he gets that little foothold, man, we just go so often. And so we, we look at that, that area. But Paul doesn't, doesn't stop there. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because again, you can kind of tell this is a comprehensive spiritual warfare from the example of Paul through 2 Corinthians 10 through 2 Corinthians 12. Because this whole area looks so clear. Now, I, I want to I set this up before I read this text, because I need to put it in the context, because I'm not going to be reading, because if I read all of 10 through 12, we'd be sitting here half the day, right? Um, but Paul, Paul began receiving visions uh, and revelations from God, right? They were, they were hard for him to understand, so I'm, I'm not even going to try to dive into that, right? Because if he didn't understand what was going on in his own life, I'm surely not going to understand it 2,000 years later, right? So um, Paul also talked, like, like, he goes in and he's like, look, I'm having visions and revelations from God, and, and even if I wanted to boast about these revelations from God, I could and I would, and I'd be, I would be truthful in doing so, um, but he didn't because, he, he, because outside of Christ, they, they really didn't have any meaning, and he realized that, and so, so then he goes to this, verse 6, though if, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So he has a sense of humility right here, right? And he goes this, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness." insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So he points to spiritual warfare, even within his, his own life, that, that it was limiting to him. He had every reason to brag about his apostleship. He had every reason to brag about what he was doing. He had every reason to brag about all the great things that was going on, but he was given a reminder of humility. We need a reminder of humility. Look, to, to keep him from becoming conceited, he says it in his own words. He, I mean, could, you not, could you not realize that if someone needed a reminder of humility, like you can tell when you're becoming conceited and puffed up. Everybody can. Sometimes we choose to ignore it. But so often, you know, we, we, can, we can sense it within us. And when we sense it within us, uh, you know, maybe God's trying to humble us. And spiritual warfare, and many times, is, is a way that we are, are pushed to humility. I mean, it, it just go back. Verse 7, so, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of surpassing greatness of his revelation. So all the greatness that God has shown me, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And we'll see that that this, this thorn in the flesh, it, it, was given, it was given to Paul to actually purify his work in Christ. And, you know, this is, this is one of those absolute moments that what the devil may have intended for stopping his ministry, God turned it on his side and said, no, it's going to be used for good. Paul's afflicted and it made him dependent on Christ. See, sometimes, sometimes we need busted down a notch or two in our lives. Sometimes we, we start walking, like we start walking, we're like, oh, there's a lake. I'm going to walk on the lake. Pretty sure there's only one guy to ever walk on a lake, and I'm pretty sure you'd be the one to sink. You know, so, so often like, we, we just get puffed up and, and, and we forget that we need humility. 
We forget that we need someone just to bring us down a notch or two, and often that's, that's Christ. I, I love what, uh, again, I, I referenced uh, my friend Chuck Wallace last week. He's a professor of mine at Southeastern. And, um, so this week, his quote that, that, he's, that has kind of stuck with me is this. God uses the battle to weaken us, to bring us to dependence. God uses the battle to weaken us, to bring us to dependence. What well, depends on whom? Dependence on Christ. Dependence on him. Even though Paul pleaded, right? Uh, you know, could you imagine? He just said, Paul, I pleaded three times. That's mighty good of Paul, because if I had a thorn in my flesh, I'd be screaming every single day, God, remove it from me, please. And the first few times, it might start out being like, hey, God, like, I kind of got this thorn in my flesh. Could you? In your powerful might, God, could you please remove it? And after about a week or two, I'm like, hey, God, this thorn in the flesh is really starting to hurt. It's really getting agitating. Can, can you take it away from me? And probably about a month or two, and I'm like, God, seriously, dude, let's go. I would never call God dude like that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but look, that, that's just how, that's how we are, right? I mean, is that not how we are? Truthfully. Like, God, seriously, it's, it's about time. Like, I've learned my lesson. He's going, no, you haven't. Because the moment that I remove it, you're going to be right back to where you were. I mean, no, God, seriously, no, I learned my lesson. No, you didn't. You still need humility. God, why can I not get rid of this spiritual warfare in my life? Because you need it. Because you need to rely on my power and not your own. Because you need to be brought down to humility because you're trying to put yourself at a place where I am. And we do that. And, and I want to be very, very clear in this. Paul's thorn in the flesh was not a sin issue. Right? So often be like, well, Paul's, Paul's thorn in the flesh. Like, that was a sin thing. And, uh, you know, he's pleading with God. And, and, and God didn't want to remove his sin from him to keep him humble. And, man, too many people deal with sin like that. Uh, you know, and they say it's God-given and they're helpless. And it's ridiculous. Like, you're, you're like, God, like, Take away the gambling addiction or take away my pornography addiction, God. Take away my propensity to be prideful or take away my need to always be right. God, purify my mouth because I can't stop talking about people. God, why won't you remove this from me? It's like that, that is not a thorn in the flesh. Paul wasn't necessarily dealing with a, with a sin issue. People are like, oh, that's, that's my thorn in the flesh. That's my cross to bear. I got to deal with that. Yes, you do need to deal with your sin. <laughs> but your sin is not given to you by God. Our sin is given to us by the enemy and by ourselves that we acted on it. We are to fight against our sin, right? Uh, the book of James says what? That our, our desire breeds sin, and sin ultimately breeds death. And so uh, I don't see God giving us that in any way. It's our wickedness of our heart and our wickedness of our desires that brings us to a point of sin. And when we enact on our sin and we live in our sin, guess what? We become deceived and we become dead. And we, we, we stick on that. See, in the spiritual warfare, God gives us challenge. He doesn't give us sin. We need to separate that. Your sinfulness is not your spiritual warfare. Your sinfulness is you acting on your own desires outside of the obedience and the will of God. Mine too. Right? I, I, don't, I don't sit up here to... to say, hey, I'm, I'm perfect or any of that mess. If you know me for any amount of time, you know that's completely not true. My wife likes to remind me that I say a lot of stupid things. But you know what? I love her for that. I love her for a lot of other things too, but I love her for that because 
she is being used by God in those moments to bring me down to a place of humility. God uses other people in your life. God uses other godly people in your life to bring you to a place of obedience and, and, and to a place of understanding where you are actually are. If you don't have friends like that who are willing to tell you the hard things, man, you need to get better friends. You know, and so, and so we, we, we look at that whole thing, right? So three times, ver, chapter, uh, verse eight says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord, right? Three times I pleaded with the Lord. So what do we know? We know it's a physical problem that God allowed him to have it because uh, it says it was given to me, a messenger of Satan to harass me. So God allowed it, right? God gave it to him and Paul pleaded for him to take it, right? So uh, even, even when Paul writes, uh, you know, that about the condition, right? He even writes this in, in the, the, to the book of Galatians, right? He, he writes to the people of Galatians and says like, hey, look, I know that my physical problem, my thorn in the flesh is actually bothering you too because I can't get to, to you, right? And, and we, we look at this, right? So three times I plead with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes the battle is there because we're dealing with, with evil or the battle is there because God's trying to show us something. And look, humility for us Humility for us as people is not a normal posture. Can, can we just be honest with that? Humility for us is, is not a normal posture. We want to be recognized. We want to be rewarded. We, we don't want to fade away into obscurity. I mean, if you're an athlete, why in the world do you train? If you're an athlete or a musician, why do you practice? Why do you train? Because you want to be the best. I'm telling you, when you're the best, you're not going like, I'm so glad I'm the best. You're like, yeah, I'm the best. And we get these awards and accolades, right? Uh, but then we, we have this other side of, of humility where like, we, we worry so much about perception. L- let me give you the, the insight of, I can speak for myself when I say this, and probably some of my other, other pastor friends, right? It's this. Pastors are the ones probably that struggle some of the most with humility. Shocking, I know. But why is that? Because uh, we, we, we kind of come from on, off, often on the opposite end. We're like, you know, w- w- will people think that I'm good enough? Did I speak enough? If, if, am I leading well enough? Did I plan this event well enough? And then, and then you start to get in the back of your head of like, why are people leaving? <laughs> why is budget down? What, how come they're not sitting in the same place? How come they keep on moving further back? And are they heading towards the back door? And then we come from a place of fear. And then we, we start going like, well, this kind of all rests on me, and we start putting it on us and on us, and we kind of get prideful in that, going like, it's all about me. It's all about the elders. It's all about how good I'm going to speak, how, how good David's going to play, how, how good Brett can, can, can set together our small groups. It's all about, you know, all about just like, how many student events can I have? Are parents going to be happy with me? I don't, like, we get to this place of paralysis, and then it becomes pride. And here's the thing. We as pastors perfect a craft and, and in that, like, we, we build on our strong traits, and then when people say, wow, that was excellent, you go, and don't you forget it. <laughs> That's the heart of the pastor, guys. So often, and it is a war for us as, as your pastors to lead you well in humility because we're so, we're, we're so terrified so often of other things. Now, now sometimes I go on the, the complete opposite of that to where, like, you know, I don't know, my wife is just like, she's like, you need to bring it down, all right? Which is good. Which is good. So what does humility do, right? Let me just say this. Many people struggle with humility because it is a godly posture, but not a natural posture, okay? It's a godly posture, but not a natural posture. So what does it do? It keeps us from looking at me and points us towards God. It is a reminder of our weakness. It is a reminder of our weakness, Paul said, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am made strong. He said, I need this removed from me, and God said, no. God reminded Paul that there is only one power, and it's not him. And it's not us, it's, it's God. See, church, God's power is made perfect in our weakness, and it goes against everything we feel, right? We do not like being weak because in nature, weakness is a sign of prey, and prey is a sign of death. We don't want to be eaten and carried away in, in all these different things, right? This is why if any of you guys go hunting at any point in time, you're usually carrying some sort of shotgun on your side if a bear attacks you. It's because of those things. Like, we do not want to be prey. Like, we want to be strong, and that's one of those ways, right? So in, in this, like, understand Paul's not talking about physical strength. He's talking about the things that we actually lack. He, he's talking, like, we're never going to live up to anyone else's standard. We're not, we're not allowed to, to, you know, we'll allow our, fault, our, our faults to show, and, and when they're filled, we point to God through us. Like, when our faults are, are filled, like cracks in a wall, we don't go, yeah, I filled this myself. No, no, no. It is a reminder of our weakness that we can point back to God and say, God, he has made me strong. In our weakness, he is made strong. It's odd thing of spiritual warfare as a way to boast and strengthen Christ. I, I, I kind of understand that sometimes because of our weakness, but we, it brings glory to God when we actually do that. Here's a quote that I want you to write down. It says, God's greatest power is revealed in the most difficult time of our lives. And that's usually when we're weak. The most difficult times in our lives is when we are weak. You know, for the, for the sake of Christ, that he may receive the glory. That's why we are weak. Uh, that was what was sent to wreck Paul's ministry or, or given to him as difficulty is transformed by God into the reason he continues to proclaim. Right, so our spiritual warfare, it reminds us that we need to submit to another's will of our lives. And that's not another person, but that's God. We need to submit to God's will for our lives. It must remind us of God's power, that when we are weak, he is made strong. It can be a reminder of our weakness and, our, and a reminder of our humility. And as we deal with spiritual warfare, we need to find a purpose that God has for us in it. And this is not a comprehensive study about why spiritual warfare is in your life. But usually when I've dealt with spiritual warfare, these are kind of the, the elements that begin to, to, to creep out of me that I need to rely on God's power, that I need to be reminded of humility, and that I need to boast in my weakness to glorify God in my life. This is one of the reasons, three of the reasons, how we can find purpose in our battle through the example of Paul. I pray this week, as we go through these, as you guys have these discussions in your small group, I pray that these elements will come out that how can we better follow Christ in spiritual warfare. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we love you. God, and we want to give you the glory. God, I pray that you would just reveal yourself to us. God, I just pray that you would just reign supreme in our lives. God, in the middle of spiritual warfare, it is so hard to rely on, on you and on your power. It's so easy to slip into our old ways and things that we used to do, God. It's so easy to fall back into these things. It's so easy to, to look to ourselves and look to other people around us, God. And, and though they may be good things, God, they're not ultimately of your strength. God, I pray that we'd, we'd stay humble. God, I pray that we would stay weak, that you'd be made strong. God, even when we have the ability... God, even when we have the ability to be right, God, I pray that we would choose compassion, and I pray that we would choose mercy, and I pray that we would choose your example. 
Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.